After Jesus had said this prayer, he left with his disciples and went across Kidron Brook. There was a garden in that place, and Jesus and his disciples went in. Judas, the traitor, knew where it was, because many times Jesus had met there with his disciples. So Judas went to the garden, taking with him a group of Roman soldiers and some temple guards sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were armed and carried lanterns and torches. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward and asked them, Who is it you are looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Judas the traitor was standing there with them when Jesus said to them, I am he. They moved back and fell to the ground. Again, Jesus asked them, Who is it you are looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I have already told you that I am he. If then you are looking for me, let these others go. He said this so that what he had said might come true. Father, I have not lost even one of those you gave me. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. The name of the slave was Malchus. Put your sword back in its place. Do you think that I will not drink the cup of suffering which my father has given me? Then the Roman soldiers, with their commanding officer and the Jewish guards, arrested Jesus, tied him up, and took him first to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jewish authorities that it was better that one man should die for all the people. Good morning. We are uh, spending the first half of our Sundays in 2022 uh, looking at the big questions of life asked of Jesus and by Jesus. And Jesus' dear friend, John, must have been similarly intrigued by these, these serious questions about life because he mentions them more than any other of Jesus' biographers about his life. And the question Jesus asked this morning, he asks of Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. And we'll get into this more, but you can pick up just from the context clue that this cup of which Jesus speaks is one of difficulty and great suffering. It results in the unjust arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. But it was not a foregone conclusion. As we'll see, more than with any other decision, Jesus wrestled with answering this one because it would mean losing his life. And losing is never easy, even for Jesus. Um, and I could say, especially for someone like myself, I got to confess that to you guys. As a young man, um, I didn't like to lose any sort of designed competition. Uh, I love pretty much every sport. If, if, if there was a, there were a ball involved, I love to play it. But my best sport, probably as a kid, was tennis. Uh, and during one junior uh, tennis tournament, I was drinking 
from, uh, from a bottle that had one of these, these plastic straws, those thick plastic straws, right? The only problem is that between games, uh, some yellow jackets managed to uh, find safe lodging in that straw, uh, which I, I did not realize. Uh, so that uh, after spitting them out, uh, my throat began to swell, uh, but I would not forfeit that game. It was too important, this tournament was to me. So I found me some Benadryl, popped that in, and served the next point, and then promptly began to lose my voice over the next two days. Um, this gives you an idea of my mentality. I'm thinking also of the board game Monopoly, right? You know this. Nothing brings out fierce competition. It's really ugly, actually. Ugly competition, like the board game uh, Monopoly. My older, at that time, college-age brother, a greedy capitalist that he was, uh, he loved to beat me at Monopoly. Loved it. And I got so mad once that I took a shaker and threw pepper in his face once he took boardwalk from me. So I, uh, I'm not proud of it that I did that. Uh, I eventually regretted that I blinded him for a couple hours, but he was fine, of course. Uh, he'd be okay. And while, and while the Lord has certainly uh, tamed my competitiveness significantly, still I feel it rising up in me sometimes. Even the other day, I was meeting with some, um, uh, some dear women who are our prayer intercessors on behalf of this group of, of pastors, a citywide pastors group that meets every week. We get together and pray. And behind the scenes, there's these, these women who um, intercede for us. So I was, it was my turn to meet with these women. I hadn't met with them before. Dear people, asking all these questions. One of the women was uh, from the city in which I was born in North Carolina. And she said, um, yeah, you know, I'm from there. I even, I'm still even a Duke fan. And one of the ladies says, oh, so like that's a big basketball school, right? And of course, in that moment, Sweet women, I have to speak up and say, yes, big basketball school. My school, University of North Carolina, beat Duke in the Final Four recently. First time they ever met in the tournament. Uh, wonderful. And then I caught myself, finally stopped saying something. But I had to say something out loud. Because losing is never easy, as you can see, especially for me. But maybe even more especially for the American church. The American church, we've looked around and we fear that we're losing losing our power, losing our values, losing our influence over the culture. And you know what? There's probably some truth to that. In the ebb and flow of history, we are probably, as a church, in a bit of an ebb as opposed to a flow. And so we fight. But we started to fight like everyone else around us, around us fights, right? We, we get angry. We raise our voices. We demonize those who disagree with us, using the same weapons the world around us uses. And we can see the American church in today's passage. So before we get to Jesus as our example and source for losing well, we're first going to look at Peter. Peter winning, wanting to win against competing kingdoms. Peter wanted to win more than any other of Jesus' disciples. He was the first to, to speak up, almost always the first to speak up, to try to impress Jesus. Sometimes he does this uh, erroneously, like the time he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him for his plan of suffering and death. Sometimes 
Peter speaks up victoriously, like being the first to buzz in and get the right answer, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Peter gets it right. Sometimes Peter speaks up first hilariously, like the time he and his friends are with uh, Jesus and they see a transfigured Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And he says, uh, hey, fellas, you know what would be a great idea? Why don't I make hospitality tents for all you guys? And it's such a weird idea that God has to speak from heaven and interrupt Peter, literally just speaks down. First to speak up to Jesus, for Jesus, and says that he'll be the first to die with Jesus. Just to hammer this point home, when Jesus returns from the dead and restores Peter, remember what he asked Peter in that moment? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other disciples? Which must have cut Peter to the heart, right? A, a punch to the gut. Because Peter failed Jesus. Failed Jesus when he, he wanted to be the one. He proclaimed being the one to love Jesus more than anyone else. More than anyone else, right? Peter loved to win. So when he sees his Lord about to get arrested, he uses the weapons of the world to violently defend Jesus and his kingdom. He was likely going for the death blow when this, this uh, servant of the high priest, Malchus, flinched enough to where Peter instead nicked his ear instead of striking him in the head. Why was he so angry? Who was he fighting against? Not one, but two competing kingdoms. The first one is a, is a secular kingdom, the empire. This, quote, band of soldiers as we see in verse 3, procured by Judas, is literally a cohort of Roman auxiliary soldiers. On co a cohort was on paper a thousand men, but likely here more like a manipole, which was between 70 and, and 200 men who showed up to arrest one man. So it's a show of strength, 70 to 200 people. And we saw a video up there that looked like it was maybe a dozen or something. Probably 70 to 200 men, Roman soldiers showed up. It was a show of strength, a significant one. Why is this? Well, the Passover festival, around the time this happens, is right during the Passover festival. Passover festival was a, uh, a celebration of the Jewish nation's emancipation from another nation that occupied them, Egypt. And here we have, unsurprisingly then, most Jewish rebellions that rose up against Rome, occupying Rome, rose up during the time of the Passover. Everybody was thinking about being emancipated from a nation that was oppressing us. Here is a nation oppressing the Jewish people. And so a lot of times rebellions would spring up during the Passover. And so the Roman army would send its cohort out in part because the Jewish leadership had forged a kind of unholy alliance with the Roman Empire. And that's our second kingdom against which Peter is rebelling here the conservative religious kingdom, the temple. So you have the empire and the temple. And the temple, the conservative religious kingdom, they wanted to keep things the way they'd always been. Same leadership, same power structure. So when they went out to arrest Jesus, they did so with, quote, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, a.k.a. the temple police. Alliances formed. You see, the Roman government required 
every nation to swear allegiance and make sacrifices to Caesar, but they made one exception, and that was to the nation of Israel. In return, the priests of the temple were required to offer daily sacrifices, sorry, daily prayers, daily prayers on behalf of Caesar. And of course, the entire nation had to pay taxes. The temple leadership was backed by Roman power when needed, and, then, and they got to set the terms, kind of set the, the pattern of life and the rules for everyday Jewish living. So it worked out well. So you had this secular kingdom on the one hand, you had this conservative, conservative religious kingdom on the other, competing with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Peter thinks the best way to win is to fight fire with fire. That's how I'm going to win this battle. But Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword. Put away your sword. See, Jesus brings with him the great reversal, an upside-down kingdom in which the way to win was actually through losing. The way to win was actually through losing. That's our message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else this morning, remember this message in a nutshell. Be willing to lose so that more might win. Be willing to lose so that more might win. You may have noticed that there's a secular and conservative religious kingdom that's alive and well today. Both are often up here in our grills, in our faces, whether it's through, through media, through conversation, through whatever it might be. And the temptation is to, like Peter, violently lash out against either or. But we can look to the example of Jesus, looking to his example. Maybe there's a better way to cause others around us to pause, to take notice, even persuade them to this better way. And in doing so, Jesus says that it's not only others who might win, but that ultimately we will win also by losing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, that if whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. Whoever loses his life for me and the good news will actually find it. By losing, you save. By losing, you find. This is Jesus' radical kingdom pattern. Winning through losing. It's a radical way that we see here in Jesus who gives us the example of losing well. In fact, Jesus loses not once but twice in this passage. First, he experiences a, a real interpersonal loss through his relationship with Judas. A man who stole from him, did recon work on him, plotted against him. Jesus voluntarily lets him win. This is the guy who Jesus let into his inner circle and used, knowing that he would use his vulnerability against him. It had been so, so hard. Yet in this moment, when, when everything human in Jesus, everything he too was tempted, Jesus probably wanted to stare Judas down and just let out a, man, Judas, you piece of poop right? Call down the, the angels to, to smite this man. He lets Judas walk away with the momentary satisfaction of winning. That wasn't the only loss Jesus endured. He also endured an institutional loss, right? 
This was Jesus versus empire and temple. Jesus didn't just lose face to a former friend. He loses to the other side, the dreaded other side, the empire and the temple. He and his followers don't get to bask in the glow of getting a victory in the culture war. Instead, he goes willingly with them, arrested by them both. The hardest part is knowing ahead of time that you're going to lose. And we see that right in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. That means Jesus knew this was happening. He, he, he struggled with it, thought about it, replayed it in his mind, and then he actually had to go out and eat it. Just eat it. Like a lamb, like a, like a sheep led before its shears, so he not opened his mouth. He did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 tells us about Jesus. Two conversations this week in which I knew I voluntarily needed to eat it. Uh, one in which I quickly realized moments into the conversation that I was going to need to swallow my pride. Uh, I disagreed with the person. It was important to me, but it wasn't essential to Jesus and his good news message. So I just needed to swallow my pride. The second instance was one in which I knew as soon as I dialed the numbers on that phone and the other person picked up the phone, I was going to have to eat it. It wasn't anyone in this church, but it was, it was someone um, younger than me. And that's important because early into our conversation, they began to lecture me, and I just listened. And you know that that feeling is like when someone, you know, decades younger than you starts to tell you what, you know, you're like, well, Ryan, you're, you're preaching to me right now, so I know what that reels like. But, but as they said this, I managed, I just biting my tongue, and I managed to even get out a couple, yep, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah, I even reflected back to them what, what they might be feeling, even though their overall point was absurd to me. And listen, this wasn't a normal week for me. I don't normally, like, you know, experience this. I don't normally get into these, these moments. But God knew this would be a week where his word would nourish and prepare me for this. And so I, it was good. And I think this is how we can apply this principle, being willing to lose so that more might win. If washing another's feet is the ultimate act of dying to self and serving one another in Jesus' culture, I think today the supreme act of service would be listening without clapping back, right? Listening without giving that knee-jerk response back. Think about it. Where do we most often clash with competing kingdoms of this world? Where, where are those moments? It's usually in conversation with our neighbors about matters, usually cultural war matters, with which we disagree, with you, which you might personally disagree uh, conspiracy theories, climate change, gun control, critical race, race theory, which no one seems to know what it actually is, but let's just say it's racism baked into our institutions. Either government is acting Marxist socialist with anything that they do, or corporations are always greedy capitalists with everything they do. And I feel within me rising this angst, like P Peter wanted to unsheath his sword, and I, and I want to say, my part. I want to say my opinion. I want to say my view, rather than just listen and eat it and take the L, take the loss.
Imagine if the American church did that on the regular. Just, just, just listening without clapping back. What would that do in people? The, the likelihood of, of others noticing and saying yes to Jesus would exponentially increase, wouldn't it? If, if the church as a whole did this. It's, it's an option, a legitimate option, mentioned, by the way, later in the Bible. A follower of Jesus named Paul is talking to this one church about lawsuits. We're, we're talking here not conversation, not opinions about politics, not this. We're talking about loss of money and property that when it really hits home. And he brings up to them a radical option. He says to this church, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul offers this option because he's concerned that, about Christians arguing in the public arena. Sound familiar? For the sake, he says, of people noticing the difference of Jesus Christ, just eat it, suffer wrong, voluntarily take the loss. And that's about their property and money. And it seems radical because the, the impulse in us to, to clap back is so strong. I feel it too. Which is why we're given not just an example, but a power source for losing well. Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus says it with such surety, like, of course I'm going to do this. Every biography of Jesus' life includes this scene in the garden. But the other three biographies give a little bit more detail. One of which is Mark's gospel, where we see this decision to drink the cup, quote-unquote drink the cup, wasn't so straightforward. Look with me at this, with this, if you would. This is Mark chapter 14, verses 35 through 36. It's up here on the screen. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, he's praying this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now we know that this prayer is likely a summary of a longer time in prayer, which means that Jesus likely actually asked, lingered on, maybe even repeated this request, remove this cup from me. This cup is mentioned in the Old Testament as the cup of wrath, quote unquote, cup of wrath reserved as God's just, just punishment for every person who rebels against him. In fact, Jeremiah 25 lists 18 plus nations and then says all the kingdoms of the world are supposed to drink from this cup because they've rebelled in their hearts against the living God. Well, friends, on the cross, Jesus would take upon himself God's wrath for that big no that resides in all of our hearts, wanting to say no to God and yes to my way of living. That's what Jesus says. That's a lot of no's for a lot of people in history, and so it's a lot of wrath. And Jesus loves the Father. He just wants to please him. And so for all that blame and all that wrath to fall upon Jesus, the Son, so he asks for it in that moment to be removed from him. And God says no. 
For the first time in human history, God says no to Jesus so that he might say yes to us. Think about that. On the cross, Jesus loses so that you and I might win forever. So even here in verse 8, he says that the kingdoms of this world, if you seek me, let these men go. Let these men go. And if you're familiar with the Bible, who does that sound like? Let these men go. Sounds like Moses, right? And Jesus is the greater Moses delivering his people. Let my people go. You can hear Charlton Heston say it maybe. But can you hear Jesus say it? Let my people go. Freedom. This this self-sacrificial love is our source. His self-giving love is our fuel to follow his example, to actually do the hard and radical thing. Practically speaking, your swords are ready every time your neighbor threatens your kingdom, right? And we feel that threat. We want to pull out our swords. Even if your kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, don't worry. He can defend it. He's strong enough to do so. Friends, I want to encourage you, put your sword back in its sheath and first try listening and losing instead. Just try it. This is something, by the way, I have to say, this church, I want to commend you, this church does really well. I've witnessed a number of you eat your words and instead embrace someone with a different kingdom, from a different kingdom, for the sake of Jesus and his good news. I've seen you just eat it. And I want to say, well done. I keep that up for the sake of the good news Jesus doesn't want to use you to save America. He wants to use you to save Americans. And there's a big difference. You know, there's a cross that hangs over the emperor's entrance to the Roman Colosseum. As Andy Stanley points out in his book, not in it to win it. When the Colosseum was constructed, crosses were ubiquitous throughout the Roman Empire not merely as a method of of execution, although it was, but as an instrument of of terror and shame, as an example for people to see and and revile in horror when they saw it. And so many Christians were crucified. Served, these, these crosses served as a reminder that Caesar was king and that Rome was forever. Well, by the fifth century, the cross came to stand for the love of God. In the 18th century, Pope Benedict XIV declared the Roman Colosseum a sacred monument to the suffering of Christ. And the cross to the emperor's entrance to that monument it was a monument to those who gave their lives for Christ. Those who gave their lives to Christ throughout the empire. They quietly served others. They freed their slaves when others didn't. They picked up babies exposed to the elements and left for dead and adopted them into their own families. They lost their lives simply for quietly serving Jesus. And God used their losing to transform a continent. That secular empire fell. The conservative temple now only has one wall remaining, but the kingdom of Jesus spread like wildfire transform an entire culture, and now the cross is lifted high because they chose to lose. 
we can still do the same so that more might win. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I think we can confess that as a church in this country, we've wanted our kingdom, our side, to win more sometimes than we've wanted to win people to Jesus. And we're sorry for that. Um, Father, in my heart, I apologize for that. Father, I hope in all of our hearts we can apologize for that impulse to wanting our side to win more than we wanted to win people to the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you've forgiven us. We know that because you lost, we might win. We know that you've forgiven all the no's in our hearts. And for that sacrifice, may that fuel us to sometimes also take the loss and just just listen to others. Love them well and not clap back. To follow your example, Jesus, who like a sheep before his shears was silent, so you not opened your mouth when it came to someone threatening your kingdom. God, please use the example of our lives, swallowing our pride, to influence others, to see a difference in the way of Jesus so that more might respond to his news. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.